Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Today's message is a, has been rated fondly as a PG-13 message. Okay, I tried everything I knew how to get that word out. Um, It's just going to be a little bit different, but it's where Jesus takes us in the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been studying now for the last eight weeks. And I I, I pray that one of the things that you have seen as we've been taking this journey uh, is the way that Jesus lays out that leads to human flourishing in relationship with God you know, our relationship up and we relationship with one another, our relationships in, and then so that we would go out to change the world together. And the invitation that Jesus gives, if you've read the Gospels any at all, you'll see this repeated over and over again. Jesus would say something like this one line, repent and believe the good news. Um, in, in Matthew chapter 4, just before he starts bringing the greatest sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, uh, it says this, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you go over to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 15, Jesus began his ministry by saying the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. Uh, that, that word repent can actually be translated, rethink everything about life from the ground up. You know, just kind of start over rethinking about life. And then believe the good news. Put all your trust, all of your life trust in the good news that Jesus is bringing. Now, the world that we live in um, has a narrative. Every time you turn your phone on in the morning, maybe look at your news feed or you know, open the paper, turn on your TV, walk out your front door. The world is trying to tell you what it means to be human and specific to what it means today, to what it means to be a sexual being. And it, it'll kind of tell you that, look, basically you're an animal. Your sexuality is just a biological release and, and nothing more. Marriage is just a social construct that, you know, got dreamt up somewhere around the Byzantine era. Um, if you're into it, fine. If you're not, no big deal. You know, the world, when it talks about the teaching of the church and all the wisdom from thousands of years in relationship with God, will tell you that the church's teaching is basically, uh, on, on sexuality and marriage especially, is just repressive. And you need to throw off those chains and break free that... You know, there's no real meaning or purpose to, to life. Uh, so by default, then, the goal is just to try to get as much happiness as you can, you know, in those several decades that you're going to get to live because then you're just going to be dust. So do what makes you happy. Don't think about long-term impacts. Don't, don't think about the person that you're becoming. Don't think about or worry or consider whether you're growing or maturing or becoming, you know, a better person. Just live and let live. Carpe diem, seize the day. Because you're only going to be here a short while. So then there's nothing. Now that is one narrative. That's one story, if you would. And the question that I want to throw out at the end of that story is this. Does that story lead to human flourishing? Actually, does it lead to human flourishing? Are the people that are living in that narrative, you know, if you get behind the veneer of some of that pseudo-happiness stuff, are they, are they the kind of life you actually want to emulate? Do you want to kind of follow and build your life around? 
You know, behind the whole sales pitch and flurry, do you find the emotional pain, the regret, the, the breach of intimacy, the insecurity, the alimony payments, and the fatherlessness, and all sorts of damage? Because if you look behind it and under the surface, you judge for yourselves. But then the, that, that leads to the question, is there a better story? Is there a, a, another story out there? And I believe there is. And I believe it's the story that Jesus brings to us. It's the narrative, if you would, uh, that story told by Jesus of Jesus. And it flows, quite frankly, from both the Old and New Testaments in, in this book. And in this story, you're not an animal. You're not. You're a human being made in the image of God. You're either made in that image male or female. You're not an animal. You're, in fact, you're made, you read the opening chapters, you're made to rule and reign, have dominion over the animal kingdom. And even over that part of your kind of primal base nature, yourself, if you would. Now, there is meaning in Jesus' narrative. There is purpose to your life. Who you become actually matters eternally. Not just now, but eternally. And if you want to live a good life, then you've got to become a good person. And the way that you do that is through following Jesus, the one who came in flesh, God, God in the flesh, the one who made you, the Bible tells us, from the ground up. And then he came to heal the brokenness that sin brought into our lives, all of, of our brokenness, even our sexual brokenness. And then he calls us to do everything we can to move forward because that's the heart of Jesus. It's the way of Jesus. Friends, that is a different kind of story, a different narrative altogether. I think it's a much better, a much more compelling story. I think it is good news. And that's the invitation of Jesus. When he says repent and believe the good news, he's talking about live from that narrative. Live in that good news about your sexuality. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to take a look at what Jesus specifically has to say in this area of our lives. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We've been there a little while. And we're going to read four verses. So starting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 a day. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. And that is a tough word. That's a difficult word to sort through and, and think through. But I want us to do that together today. When I was, I think it was 11 years old, somewhere in that 10, 11 years old age, um, I was with a couple of buddies at a friend's house about two blocks away. It's in our neighborhood, but about two blocks away from, from my house. And one of those boys that I was with had gotten hold of his father's uh, Playboy. It was the first time that I had ever been exposed to pornography. 
Now, I stand here today about five decades beyond that. And I can tell you that those images and the feelings that they stirred did something to me. Uh, messed with me, imprinted themselves on me so that they are still with me today. Now, here's the really sad part about that story. It's not unique. Not not unique in in the, the, the least possible way. And it is certainly not unique for kids growing up today where pornography is a 97 billion, that's a B, a $97 billion industry globally. The United States owns somewhere between estimates are 15 to $16 billion of that. Catch this. Another statistic. About 90% of boys and 60% of girls are going to be exposed to pornography on the Internet by the time they're 18. I've read statistics that say that are, that's even higher. Currently, pornographic sites attract more hits than Amazon and Twitter and Netflix combined. So here's the kind of the question that flows out of that. Kind of on a, on a human level, why is there such a market for that? Why a $97 billion industry? Well, here's why. Because human beings were designed for intimacy. We long for intimacy. It's wired into the fabric and fiber of our being. You know, there's no person walking around on the face of this planet that doesn't some way long for intimacy. You go back, you read about it in Genesis chapter 2 when God created. And he talks about his creation in verse 24. He says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast this intimacy to his wife. And they shall become one flesh, intimacy. And then, and the man and wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Adam and Eve were wired together by God. But here's what happened. You flip the next page in the Bible to chapter 3, and you see sin fracturing that. And instead of being naked and unashamed, they are scrounging around trying to cover themselves in hiddenness, living in shame. Originally, they had walked with with one another, this this desire wired into their DNA for, for intimacy. But then those desires go awry, you know, and, and they just have globally. Those God-given good desires got distorted. And when that happens, we start using what God intends for intimacy between two people to become a tool for self-gratification for only one person. But that desire is still there, and the desire itself is still good. It's designed by God to lead to intimacy. The desire is part of what makes us human. Now, it's not necessarily our sexual desire, our sexual drive that makes us humans. Animals have that. It's our drive for intimacy, of, of our longing to, to know and be known, our longing to love and, and be loved. So what happens when our good, God-given drive gets distorted? What happens when it, it, it gets off the rails and goes wrong? Well, that's what Jesus is trying to teach us here. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Where would his hearers have heard that? In the Old Testament. 
Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery, one of the Ten Commandments. All, all the way back there. But then that's, Jesus doesn't stop there and say, you've heard that. Jesus goes on to say, but I say to you. And Jesus' point here is, you know, technically it can be true that you're going to be able to honor that command, but there's something else going on that we need to address. So I, I say to you, something rotting on the inside Jesus wants to address. And, and so Jesus begins to teach what his desire is for the fulfillment. Remember, we talked about that the last couple of weeks. The fulfillment of the law and prophets. Uh, teaching on what a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees looks like. And he's continuing to do that uh, in his teaching here. How many of you have ever seen a picture similar to this one of an iceberg? You've seen, you've seen a picture like that before? And you know that most of the iceberg exists where? Below the surface, not above the surface. Well, that's true uh, with this, this commandment. Uh, about do not commit adultery. Adultery is the surface. It's that part of the iceberg that you can see that's above the surface. The lust that Jesus is talking about is underneath the surface. And it is so much more massive than what you see uh, on, on top of the surface in a human life. And so Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not do the above the surface thing. You, you, you shall do that, you know, that, that place on top that you can see above the surface, that you can, you know, kind of check off and say, oh, I didn't do that. You can go, yeah, I, I, I didn't do that. But see, Jesus is taking a dive beneath the surface. He wants to get underneath. He wants to get at the core of humanity, the core of our heart. And, and he's asking what would cause somebody to do what's above the surface, well, it's what's below the surface, and he goes after something deeper. So Jesus says, let's talk about that thing. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is saying it's not just about that action. It's about the heart motivation. You know this. The, God's Word teaches us this, that every, everything we think, everything we do, everything we execute flows out of our heart. That's why Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, above all else, guard your heart because it's the source of your life. Your life flows from it. And what that's saying is there's no such thing as, oops, I, yeah, I did that, but that wasn't me. It's saying, well, yeah, somewhere in there, it, it's, it's part of you. Now, we want to run from that. We want to kind of polish over that. We, we, we don't want to, we don't look at it. But Jesus says, no, 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 stop here. Look at what you're becoming because of this. You'll, you'll never change anything until you change rhythms of your heart. You, you can't keep coming, you know, uh, different. You, you got you to gotta deal with this. You can't just keep rationalizing and justifying and theorizing. And Jesus says, you know why? In Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, Jesus says, for out of the heart comes all sorts of evil. And he goes on and he makes this list. See, Jesus is saying, I want to address the heart head on. I want, I want to go into that and realize all this comes from underneath the surface, coming from the soul, coming from a heart that is experiencing sickness that has thrown us off track from God's original intent for his God-given desires that have gone God awry. Now, I, I think it's going to be helpful that as we engage this, we, we, we take some moments to talk about what Jesus is not saying. 
Because what Jesus does not say here gets twisted so many times. Uh, I've seen this. And Satan loves to twist it and then drive us into a prison of shame and shackle people with shame. And so we need to be clear on what Jesus is not saying. First, Jesus is not teaching that our sexuality is evil. He's not teaching that. He's not teaching that it's wrong. He's not teaching uh, that. See, God is the designer. Sex was his idea. There are actually parts of your body that exist only to serve to provide you pleasure through, through sex. And, and what God is saying, that he says, that's all me, man. God says, I did that. I wired that. That was my idea. God says, you're welcome. That's what God is saying there. He wants you to know that. Jesus is not saying that your sexuality is wrong. He's saying, God, God designed this. God's not anti-sex. He's the most pro-sex being in the universe because he's the designer. A second thing that Jesus is not teaching. Jesus is not teaching that acknowledging beauty is, is sin. Jesus is not saying that the appreciation of beauty that you see in another person is wrong. He's not saying that. If you go to the opening chapter of the Bible, God creates, you know, the heavens and earth. And in Genesis chapter 1, it says that God saw all that he made, and it was very what? Very good. And the Hebrew word there for good is the word tov. And it has to do with sight, seeing that something is good. It has to do with sight. In his book, uh, James Bryan Smith um, wrote a series of books called the, the Good and Beautiful. And one in the series was called The Good and Beautiful Life. This is actually uh, him writing about the Sermon on the Mount. It is a great, great resource. I highly commend it to you. And he's writing literally about this, this section of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to read something to you that he says in here. Um, he says, uh, where, where am I at? I probably lost my place. Um, y'all just hold on for a minute because I really want to find this. I cannot believe I did this. Are y'all okay? Just talk among yourselves for just a second. I, 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 will, I will find my way back to this because it is important, um, or at least I think it is. Um, okay, I'm just going to tell you about it. It's, it's, it's in his chapter on this, and basically what he says took place is, and this came off perfect in the first service. I don't know what happened. Um, he, he, he said he and his brother were walking on the beach, and they're, they're both in ministry. Um, and they were walking down the beach. They were having a very serious conversation about God. And he said, as they were walking down the beach, this attractive woman in a bikini was coming to meet them. And she walked by. And as she got past them, they looked at each other and said, wow. And he goes on to say that he does not think that what they did in that moment was sin. It was an, an acknowledgement that they saw something beautiful and they expressed that. And he goes on to talk about had they turned around and set their sights on that woman's body in such a way to entice lustful feelings in their heart, they would have crossed the line to sin. But at that moment, they had not sinned. They just acknowledged something that they saw was beautiful to them. 
And I want you to know I agree with him. I agree with that's, that's if it stopped there, that he was, they were acknowledging something beautiful. Now, you can go overboard with that, sure. And it can lead to something, but that in and of itself is not sin. And Jesus is not saying, acknowledging that something beautiful that you see is sin. Now, I mentioned that as a resource of the good and beautiful life. There's another resource that I want to just bring to your attention that we use around here. It's called um, uh, the, the Growth Plan. And it is a tool. It's a 90-day journey to help you walk through in a deeper way with God under the leadership of the Holy Spirit in community. It's a tool to help you walk through and process an area of your life that you may struggle with, that the Holy Spirit may say, hey, I want to help you grow here. It is an incredible tool. Cindy Shirley and Dean Enfinger kind of helped develop it for us. We were given permission to use a a resource from another church, and they honed it. Uh, They riverized it is what we call it. But I want to commend that as another resource to help you on this journey. A third thing that Jesus is not teaching here, Jesus is not teaching that temptation is sin. In the book of James, Jesus' half-brother under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writes these words in James chapter 1, verse 14. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured. Now, that, that word there is a desire that's gone wrong. He goes on and says, and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Now, certainly temptation can lead to sin, but it does not necessarily have to. In fact, the scriptures are really clear. If you go over to Hebrews chapter 4, you'll read about Jesus. It says Jesus himself was tempted in what? Every way. How much is every way? (laughs) Every way. He was tempted in every way just like we are, but he did not sin. See, you can be tempted. That that initial kind of attraction, if you would, that initial desire for another can be stopped before you go on to, to the next level, before it conceives and gives birth to sin. So what we see Jesus saying here um, is, is something we need to understand. What he's not saying, but also what is he saying? So let's go back to verse 28. Verse 28, Jesus says, but I say to you, he wants it to be clear. I'm telling you something here. He says, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And there are three words that I want you to focus on here. I'm going to kind of get geeky-greaky again for just a minute um, because it's important, I think. Um, There are multiple words in the Greek language, the original language that was used in the New Testament. Uh, there, There are three multiple words for the word look. The word that Jesus chose to use here, he could have used another one, but it means to look with the intent to hold on to, to look in such a way that I kind of lock into it. In this case, it would mean to to look at a woman's body in such a way that I kind of trace it so that I I hold on to it. There's another word attached to that word, it's the the Greek word pros, and it means to to look, to, to be really intentional. It has to do with an intent, and it's an, an important part of the teaching here. It's a choice, a literal choice. You intend to do this, and then he adds on that the word for lust. Now, that is a really churchy word. You don't hear that out in our culture. And the word that's used here is a compound word. Again, it means to kind of hold on to, to imagine, if you would, in, in your mind, to, to focus on. And the last half of that compound word is to do that, to imagine, with a passionate desire. 
So in Jesus' terminology, it means lust is to desire for the purpose of possessing. Lust is intention, is, is to dominate. And it creates, if, if you would, it, it inflames this kind of coveting desire. So when the Bible says a man lusts after a woman, what, what that man is doing is he's taking the mystery of the personhood of that woman and he's reducing it to a consumer transaction and he covets her as a thing rather than a person. Now, now Jesus uh, here seems to be talking uniquely and specifically to us men. I mean, this seems to be, he really seems to be aiming at that. And so I'm mostly going to stay there today, but I do need to just say, say one thing. There is a growing niche in the uh, area of the pornography industry targeting women. And those who deal in these issues tell us that uh, female addiction to pornography is on the rise. And in our hyper-sexualized culture, that's, that doesn't surprise me. I hope you're not too terribly surprised on it. See, what's going on here is what happens when desire gets off track. When a beautiful, God-given imagination gets overcome by, by evil. You know, when, when this God-given beautiful thing called an imagination that God gave us to to move things along in humanity. Imagination is what gave us the ability to create rockets that go to the moon and create, you know, medications that bring healing and fight cancer and all, all kinds of things because God gave humanity the ability to dream and, and dream up new things. But that good God-given imagination can also take us to some very dark spaces. And Jesus is saying that's what's going on. One more kind of side note about what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying here that adultery and lust are the same thing. Adultery is the, you know, the culmination of lust that comes out on the surface. That can be even more destructive. But what Jesus is trying to say is they both come from the same place. They both come from this place that is fractured and distorted. So that instead of loving somebody, we lust after them and we, we identify them not as a person but a product, not as a gift from God created in his image. We objectify them for our own gratification, that they become this product to be used. And so here's what Jesus is teaching. Jesus teaches us that an unhealthy heart turns love into lust and people into objects. For our own personal pleasure. It turns love into lust and people into objects for my own personal pleasure. Friends, the, the truth of the matter is that you and I live in a day, in a culture that could not be farther away from what Jesus teaches about a, a life that flourishes in, in human sexuality. See, Jesus says we need to war against lust. And what our culture says is, go for it, baby. Dive, dive head over heels into it. And here's one of the ways you can know that is because when you look at our culture today, nobody is talking, unless they're from, have some kind of religious background, nobody's talking about it, about the problems associated with it. In fact, if you mention it to somebody who's not a follower of Jesus, they're going to look at you like you've got a third eye or something. Like you're, you're, you're just, you know, weird, they're weirded out by that. But listen to what the Scripture says. And imagine the difference between lust 
and love because our world can't separate the two. Our world thinks they're one and the same. But listen to 1 Corinthians. Love is patient. Is lust patient? No. Love wants what it wants, and it wants it right then. It goes on to say, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. Everything about lust is self-seeking. It's all about me, 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 more, more, more. That's the anthem of a lustful heart. First Corinthians goes on to say, love is not easily angered keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. See, here's what Jesus is saying is kind of the core problem that he's addressing is is we, we use what God intends us to love, and we love what God intended us to use. And Jesus keeps pushing back because, remember, his goal is that you would enter into a life of flourishing, life in the kingdom of God, living under the rule and reign of Jesus. And so here's another thing that Jesus teaches us. He teaches us that we will never, never experience a kingdom kind of life here on earth while we continue objectifying the crown of his creation. When we continue to make uh, another person, a commodity, a, a, an object to, you know, be used, we will never, ever experience the fullness of life in the kingdom of God. And our culture is even starting to be captured by that reality. That's what the whole hashtag MeToo movement was about. That's what the whole hashtag church Too movement was about. Uh, you, you've seen this uh, de- almost day after day. It feels like Another church leader has fallen into sin because of lust, what we're talking about. But our culture is even waking up and saying, we're not taking this anymore. We're not going to let people's desires run amok and take advantage of other people, constantly objectifying. There, there are people in our culture, non-Christians who are, have awakened to this. Now, sometimes they get overboard with the way they communicate it. Yes, I grant you that. But I still believe it's, it's the movement of God awakening even a broken culture to this objectification and this hypersexualization. And friends, it has led us to a place where our children, where our children are battling gender dysphoria. And I believe that's brought on because of the role that power and greed has played in this area, this lust over human sexuality. And the female gender in that was painted with a brokenness to, to simply be seen as an object. They, they, got, they got dehumanized, and so our little girls do not want to grow up to be that. And our little boys see the monstrosity. They, they see the monster of manhood who objectify women and, and dehumanize women, and our little boys grow up and say, I don't want to be a monster like that. I don't, I don't want that. And so we've got this generation that's growing up that doesn't want to be identified as male or female in the beautiful image of God. Instead, they want to be identified as asexual without sex. And sociologists who study this, study after study, point to this upcoming sexless generation. Parents, your kids need your help here. Especially if you're the parent of preschoolers, and I'm not going to bash the public school system, but they're not going to get the help they need for this there. 
They're not. They need to get it from, from you. And if you're the parent of a preschooler and you haven't begun teaching them by the age of around three biblical theology on sexuality, you need to, you need to jumpstart, okay? There are all kinds of resources out here. here. Here's a set right here. It's called the God's Design for Sex series. It's a series of four books. They're age-graded. They're age-appropriate. The first one is entitled The Story of Me. And it is simply a book that helps you introduce, and this one is for ages three to five. It helps you begin to develop in the life of your preschooler this idea that God made their bodies. God made their bodies special. God, God created them in his image, male or female. And that is a beautiful thing. It is a good thing. That, 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 that is God's plan. And, and parents, we need to grab hold of that. Grandparents, maybe what you and I need to do is we need to buy this series for our kids to, 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 to help our grandkids. Maybe that's an investment we need to consider, consider making to help in, on, on this journey. Let me tell you about another resource that our church has for you. Um, we subscribe to uh, something called Right Now Media. And Right Now Media is this massive video library covering all kinds of things. Part of it covers parenting and helping you raise your kids in a hypersexualized culture. And all you got to do is go to our website, go to the search bar, type in right now. That's one word right now, media, second word. And it will take you to a place on our website where you can just go. You don't even have to be a member of our church. You just have to attend. This is one of the ways some people say, well, what do they do with all the money that we you know, we get, well, one of the things that we try to do are bless families to bless you with access to these kinds of resources. And you can go on there, and there's all kinds of helps for parents. There's all kinds of helpful teaching on this issue that we're addressing here today. So get, get better equipped. Get, plug into that because, friends, this is important. And if your child is already kind of getting stuck in that gender dysphoria place, if they're already struggling with their own sexuality, get them to a Christ-centered counselor. This is important. It's just, it's important. Get them there quickly. This is it's so urgent. But before you do that, you got to deal with what's going on in you. you got to deal with the reality of your sexual brokenness where, where your life has gone off the rails. And Jesus has some really strong words here to describe that. He describes it as a heart that is consumed with lust and tells us that the destination of that is hell. Now, we talked about that word that Jesus uses here, Gehenna, in great detail last week. I am not doing that again this week, Okay. You can go listen to that if you missed it last week because it, it, it took a good while to unpack that. But this is a significant word that Jesus is using here. And his original hearers on the hillside that day had a meaning that we don't have naturally because we didn't live there. But Jesus is saying here is if you've positioned your heart in this place where you're actively fighting against lust and you don't seem to be winning, the word that Jesus uses here is it's going to feel like um, the, the hell of fire burning on the inside that you just cannot put out. And if you've been there, you know that that's true. Now, friends, especially you brothers, this is a war that's being waged 
for your soul and your heart, for the heart and soul of your kids. And it's playing out in our culture. And in so many ways, our culture is winning. And what Jesus is saying is we've got to take this seriously. And to take it seriously means there's going to be a cost. There's going to be a cost if you take it seriously. I want you to look at the cost. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now, I've been doing a brief survey while I've been up here talking. And here's what I've concluded. Most of you have both eyes and both hands. Okay, so apparently you haven't, you know, had a problem here. You know, you, you, you didn't go this way, and that's a good thing. I'm affirming that you have both your eyes and, and, and both your hands. Um, see, oftentimes people, have you ever heard somebody say, especially a Baptist pastor, we take the Bible literally. Well, let me ask you a question. When he said that, did he have both his eyes? Just saying. See, friends, we don't need to take the Bible literally. What we need to do is take the Bible intelligently, with passionate hearts, seeking to understand what Jesus is really saying and pursuing that with our whole hearts. That's what we need to be doing. That's where, see, it, 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 just, it gets crazy when you go the other way. See, I think it's better for us to move that way. Now, one of the other things that Jesus is teaching here is Jesus, in, in that st- section of the Scriptures, Jesus teaches us that the end game, the end game of objectifying people is destruction. It will be destruction. I, I, this is what I think Jesus is saying here, is that you, if you continue to lust after, if you continue to objectify the crown of His creation, and think you're going to do it just by tackling the physical things, you know, plucking out your eye, cutting off your hand, that that's Jesus' primary method for dealing with this in order to combat lust? Friends, if that were the case, there's, a, there's a, a, another body part that Jesus would have said obviously needs to be cut off. Again, just saying it's all. You know, it, 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 there would have been different. And we need to be aware of this. See, Jesus is using a kind of a Hebrew idiom here to help us understand. Jesus repeats this very same thing later in Matthew chapter 18, um, verses 8 and 9. He also basically says the very same thing over in Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 48. Not talking about lust, but talking about somebody uh, becoming a stumbling block for a little child. See, he's using this to point to the seriousness of this and point out that if your outward approach, you know, is to just cut off things, to lop off things, then you're never going to get to what's going inside. You're never going to get to where the heart of the problem is if, if your answer to the question is just lop things off. See, the bigger question that Jesus is trying to lead us into is how do we kind of become the kind of people that are set free from lust? What does it look like for us to live the way of Jesus in our hearts? Because Jesus, Jesus is for freedom. Jesus is, is for intimacy. Jesus is for the value of all people. Jesus is for healthy, vibrant, life-giving sexuality, not a cheap substitute. That's what Jesus is for. 
And if, if we read this and all we go is, the goal of Jesus is that we don't commit adultery. That's not the only goal of Jesus here. If, you know, if we read this and think, the goal of Jesus is that I just don't lust anymore. How many, how many of you have ever heard of someone planning you know, their battle against lust is simply, I'm just going to try harder. I've never met anybody that that was their battle plan that was succeeding. Just to try harder to fight lust. There, there, you got to do something more. You know, just saying, I'm not going to do it anymore. It's kind of like trying to cut something off. And you're not going to win the battle that way. So here's what I think Jesus is teaching. Jesus teaches us here that everything flows from our heart everything flows from our hearts in Matthew chapter 5 verse 28 Jesus said this he said you know to to everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already notice committed adultery with her where it's a has already in the heart see if if you're looking to linger and leer it's lust and it's in the heart and it flows from the same place that adultery comes from don't forget the iceberg Adultery is above the surface. This other is deep below. And so we need to ask the question, what, what forms our heart? How, how, do we, how do we reshape our heart? How do we reshape the, the flow of this thing? So in order to do that, we've got to kind of get more in your face, a little more in your life to do this so that we can live in his kingdom. And that's what Jesus does here because he wants he wants flourishing of your, of your body and your mind and your soul and your sexuality. So what Jesus wants to do is just prod a little bit, just poke a little bit in order to change the flow of our hearts. And here's the first thing that we have to do if we want to see that flow change. We have to first admit that we all, all of us, each one of us, has some sexual brokenness. We need to admit that to God. We need to admit that to ourselves. We need to admit that to people that we're in close relationship with. Now, this isn't a unique thing for just a few people. It's something all of us deal with because we all live in this broken world. Now, it comes out in different ways. It shows up in different ways. We all carry different wounds. And we've got to become aware of what what it is we're carrying. Or we're just going to continue to be carried along by broken desires, you know, ever-increasing lack of health here. But God has a different plan. We've got to become aware of things in our past. We need to know about those and how they're impacting our present. But then we need to look at the things in our present and see how it's leading us into this brokenness in our lives. We, 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 need, to, we need to come to grips with that. We've got to bring these things to God. And not do it like uh, those that Jeremiah writes about in Jeremiah chapter 2. It it says that they were trying to dig cisterns. They were trying to build their lives on cisterns that wouldn't hold water. See, instead what we've got to do is we've got to admit our cisterns are cracked. And we've got to bring those, uh, that brokenness to God. Please, 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 please hear me say this. I don't care what your brokenness is. Please look up here. I don't care what your brokenness is. I don't care how long you've lived in it. I don't care how broken you are. God can handle it. God God can handle it. I don't care how painful it's been. God can heal it. But all healing starts at the point of honesty and saying, 
I admit I got my own brokenness here. And we got to deal with this. And we got to deal, deal with it in a safe community, in, 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 in a place where sharing can happen, in a place where you're going to be loved no matter the depth of your pain and brokenness, and, and in a place where you'll be protected. And that leads me to, to you, my dear sisters. Now, I told you this was mostly a message about aimed at men. And when you look at this, Jesus is very, very clear that this, in so many ways, is an issue that men need to get a handle on. But sisters, there, there are some implications here for you. And please hear me say that I know that I'm getting on very dangerous ground. I know that. So I'm going to ask you to grant me just a little bit of grace here for a moment. Okay, just a little bit of grace here. And, and I need to go ahead and tell you, if you email me next week, I won't respond because I'm going to be on vacation. And I'm not being funny. I actually am. God worked this out perfectly. Um, but just give me a little grace here uh, because I'm going to ask for your help, sisters. That, that's, that's what I'm going to do. See, Jesus clearly puts the responsibility for overcoming our lust on, on men, not on you. But it's also easy to miss and easy to forget that in Jesus' day, in Jesus' culture, women dressed a whole lot differently than they do in our day. They, 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 they wore head coverings. They wore long flowing robes to, to kind of hide their beauty. And the men around them were not tempted in the same way. It would, it would be similar to Saudi Arabia today. Now, we don't live in Saudi Arabia, and I'm not advocating that we should. We don't live in first century Palestine, and I'm not saying that we should. We live in the most sexually progressive, secular, post-Christian, hyper-sexualized culture that's ever existed. That's what we live in, in in our world today, and we need to understand that. We're having a conversation about immodest dress would get laughed at, at, at least, and at worst would be seen as an affront to the empowerment of a woman, or even worse than that, would be seen as trying to repress femininity. That's what the world would say. But friends, don't forget, we live in a world that's a hookup culture where, where people talk openly about their viewing of pornography and brag about it. That's our culture. And I know there are all sorts of landmines talking about this you know, having this modesty conversation, I get that. But I need to say this, you know, in the same way that men, that your brothers own the responsibility before Jesus to overcome our flesh and not objectify you or your body uh, for, for our own sexual gratification, I believe it's safe to say that in the kingdom of heaven, in the, in the vision of Jesus, that you, my sisters in Christ, have a responsibility not to flaunt your beauty and your sexuality in a way that leads to temptation for your brothers. Now, whether your choice of clothing comes from a place of naivety and you don't know the power of your own body and your beauty and what it has over men. Or if you're just kind of in a place of indifference saying, hey, it's just the style now, 
just I bought it off the rack, man. You got to figure out how to deal with it, man. Or if your opinion about, uh, about you know, kind of goes along with the culture. I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to judge your heart. That's, that's between you and Jesus. But what I am saying is this. Your brothers, and I'm asking you, sister, ladies, please think of us that way. You have brothers all around you who are fighting tooth and nail against the culture that is winning in incredible ways, but they're fighting tooth and nail to honor you, to honor your beauty, to honor your body, to honor your soul before God. And, and they're, they're battling it. Now, please hear me say, I am not trying to start a cult. I'm not saying, okay, next week, no makeup. All you ladies, wear your moo-moos. I, I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm just, I'm not. And I am not saying, ladies, that you are responsible for what you wear, the reaction of a man, and because of what you wear, he has permission to touch you in a way he wants to. I, dear God, I am not saying that. So please don't go somewhere and tell somebody that that's what I said. What I'm trying to say is, we are family. Ladies, we are brothers. Men, they're our sisters. Everybody, God is our father. And we need to live and lean into that. If we want to walk in the vision of human flourishing that, that Jesus gives us, whether you're male or female, created in his image. So, so here's the question, how are we doing? How are we doing protecting one another as we heal from our own sexual brokenness? It's a question that we've got to ask. I've got to move fast on the last, last couple. A second way that we change what's flowing from our hearts is we've got to learn to quickly as, exit temptation's presence. We've got to learn to quickly exit temptation's presence. Paul, when he was writing to the church at Corinth, it was also a church that was in a hyper-sexualized culture. Uh, in, in fact, here's what was going on in Corinth. Most of the women that had come into the church had come out of a pagan system of worship um, where many of them had been prostitutes worship prostitutes it was part of their their ritual of worship many of the men that were make making up the the church at corinth were men who had participated with those prostitutes in worship of pagan gods and now they are the church messy place wouldn't you say it was a messy place and paul who's inspired by the holy spirit to that group of people writes these words when he's trying to counsel them pastorally on this issue. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Run from it. Every other sin that a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with the price, so glorify God in your body. And here's his point. Don't, don't think that you're going to overcome this simply through willpower, that you can stay in it and overcome it by willpower. you got to run from it, he says. There's a path that you've got you to get off of. You've got to get on, uh, on another path. And at the beginning of this journey, 
from one path to another, you may have to make some drastic leaps. You know, the smartest thing that you may do to overcome this is to get a dumb phone. You may have to give up your smartphone and get a dumb phone if it is, if it is being used by God. I mean, being used by Satan to battle what God intends for you. You may have to change your, your cable package so that there's certain things that aren't coming in. Martin Luther, that great reformer, made this statement. He said, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Don't let this nest in you. You can do something about it. Don't let anything ungodly come and find a resting place in your heart. Flee from it before it does more damage. Third thing to change the flow of this in our hearts. We've got to cultivate healthy intimacy. Cultivate healthy intimacy. And I wish I had a lot more time to talk about this. We're going to talk about this word in the days ahead. But it's an Old Testament Hebrew word, hesed. Say that with me. Hesed. This is an incredible word. It's, it's actually a word about enduring covenant love. If you're needing a, a Bible reference, write this down because it's not going to come up on the screen. Lamentations 3.22. And that says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And it describes the deepest kind of love that creates and forms the kinds of relational attachments that is needed for human beings to flourish. Now, in our day, the word hesed has started being used. You're going to blow your mind, maybe. It did mine. It's starting to be used by neuroscientists. Christian neuroscientists are using this word because it describes what is needed in a human being to develop healthy relational attachment. Now, in in the Old Testament, the word, uh, it's a word about how to love God, how to be loved by God, how to love one another. New Testament, the closest word is the word agape. But see, neuroscientists have understood that our brains need to form some kind of healthy relational attachment. And if, if they don't, then what happens are all kinds of emotional and psychological and social issues arise if we don't uh, develop these he- healthy relational attachments. Again, you're going to hear that word more and more around River Bluff, but this, this hesed, this attachment love, even impacts the development of a healthy sexuality. Now, here's what don't do. Don't, when you hear the word hesed, think it's only about, about sexuality. It's, it's about attachment. It's about connection. It's about intimacy. That's what that word is about. Now, if you're married, the Apostle Paul is desperately, again, trying to help the church at Corinth, the brothers and sisters there who are battling what Jesus has described as this sexual fire of hell. And so Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to those who are married. Verse 5, do not despise, excuse me, do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, here's what the scriptures are saying. He's saying, know that what you do with your physical body has influence on your spiritual life. And know that when you're deeply satisfied in a relationship with your spouse, the devil does not have the same space to attack you. 
And so what he's saying here, you know, engage in this sexual expression with one another because it helps defeat what Satan wants to do. You rob him of space to work in your life. So part of your practice needs to be to do that, which the Bible says leads to greater attachment, to greater intimacy. And God designed sexual relationship between a husband and wife to do that. This passage also recognizes that the enemy, when he uh, attacks, he does it when we're weakest. And if you're married, you know that what that means is when you're fighting with your spouse, you're most open to this temptation. If you're single, Satan's still going to tempt you here too. And he's going to tempt you here mostly in your loneliness, in your desire for connection, in your desire to be married, to have somebody to be with. And so to single people who are here in the room today, I would say to you the same thing applies. You need to cultivate healthy, biblical attachment, non-sexual intimacy, and you do that through friendships, not hookups. That's what our culture would tell you. This is not a friends with benefits kind of thing. This is something completely different. And you've got to know the temptation and know how to fight it. And, and lastly, I know I've run long today. I'm sorry. But here's the fourth thing and final thing. The best thing that you can do to keep your soul healthy in this area of life is worship. It, it, it is worship. Train your soul to worship Jesus. I'm going to ask the worship team to just start making your way back up here. See, the best thing that you and I can do to fight lust is remember who Jesus is and train our soul to worship him. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, the Bible tells us we love each other because he loved us first. If you want to love God more, then what you need to do is more frequently recall his love for you. More often do that. And friends, if you've put your trust in Jesus, then you're, you're a child. You're a child of the Most High God. You are deeply loved. You are deeply cherished. You, you've, you've, you've been made holy by His grace and by His mercy that has been showered down on you because of what Jesus did on the cross. And, and, and friends, the person who walks in the most freedom is the person who is most confident that they are loved by God. Not because they've earned it, not, not because, you know, they, they've done something that they could check a box off and say, yep, done that. You know, that they say, you know, you could fill in the blank of how many things they didn't do this week. That's not it. It's just simply knowing, feeding on the reality, feed, feasting, if you would, on the reality that we are loved by God because we're his children. And because of that, we've been showered by his grace. That's it. So if you're struggling with this thing called lust, one of the great things you can do is to remind yourself that you're loved by God. And remind yourself again and again and again and again. And when you remind yourself of that, you know what it's going to cause you to do? To run to Him. In that moment of temptation, when it says flee sexual immorality, okay, it says flee, but where does it tell you to go? You run to your Father. He loves you. He has a plan for you. He has a plan for your soul. He has a plan for your mind. He has a plan for your body. He has a plan for your sexuality. So again and again and again.
you run to your father. It doesn't matter how many times you've run to him and made a new promise and blown it. It doesn't matter how dark your darkness is in this area of your life. You run to your father and you do it again and you do it again and you do it again. Because that's where victory is found. You just stop and worship. What I would tell you here is stop, drop, and worship. Okay? Not roll, but worship. Worship Jesus. Because it's in Him that we find freedom. And we find freedom in this fight for our sexuality as well. Pray with me. Father God, we come in this moment. We come giving thanks to You, O God, for creating the beautiful gift of our sexuality. But God, we we live in a world, we live in a day, we live confessing, admitting to you, oh God, and to one another, we're all broken sexually. And we need you. We need you to speak into us. We need to hear your voice of love over us. We need to experience your grace drawing us again and again and again because we're coming, Father. We're going to flee sexual immorality. We're going to admit the truth that this is a fight for us. And, and we're, we're going to work on those things to appropriately experience intimacy in the relationships that you have given us, oh God. But Lord, we're coming to you right now because we need you. We come to worship you. We come to experience your face looking at us, smiling upon us. We come, God, we need your favor resting on us. So we come. We come again and again and again. You can come back to God right now. Just tell him, Lord, I admit my sexuality is broken. Maybe you need to tell him, Lord, it's just flat busted and I need you. I need healing. I need hope. I need help, oh God. So I'm coming back to you for the 1,300th time, God, I'm coming back because of who you are. And I'm your child. I come. Lord, we come to worship you to thank you, to celebrate your goodness that we can come back again and again and again. And it's in the name of Jesus that we know we can come. And in his name we pray.